Isaiah chapter 6 this evening. This is one of the great chapters of the Bible, and as such, you, you would want to give it a profound title, but you can't, you can't do that. I don't think it's wise to just try to give it a profound title. It becomes corny and something. Nothing casual. That is the title about this evening's uh, for this evening's consideration, because contact with God is never casual, and that is just a fact. Um, it, it, and when we have contact with God in a very special way, in a unique way, um, it, it comes with an assignment. There's duty attached to it. It's not just, well, I, you know, you were a little lonely, and I just come by to say hi. Uh, it could be some of that, but there's also work that's involved. Uh, I. I don't think Isaiah's audience, when they got to what we call the sixth chapter, I don't think they overthought what Isaiah was saying. And I don't think you have to. I do believe the pastor, part of the pastor's role in preaching the word is to squeeze every insight that he can get out of the, the, that passage from the Holy Spirit that's going to be meaningful to the people. But I also feel like many commentators just overthink the chapter. So I hope I'm not guilty of that. And as I think most of you are familiar with what Isaiah 6 is about, the calling of the prophet. And we'll talk about in a moment at what point does this calling come. Uh, but how could he not share such an experience? How could a man like Isaiah have a vision like this and leave it out of his great prophecies. You just can't because there's nothing casual about having a vision given to you by God or such contact with God. So we look now at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now that alone you could preach for an hour and a half very easily on just that one verse. This King Uzziah, we'll talk briefly about him, He's evidently still alive when he writes this, or when he has this experience. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, not right after King Uzziah died. And this king is also known as Ahaziah. We'll come to that in a moment. But he was one of Judah's great kings. In spite of a spiritual blunder later on in his life, later in his ministry, where he overstepped his authority... Uh, it became presumptuous, and David prayed, Lord, protect me from presumptuous sins. And he presumed that because he was king, he could also act as priest, sort of merging the, the throne with the uh, priesthood. And, and God shut that down in a very um, severe way, smote him with leprosy for that self-righteous act. But that one act did not take away from how much God did through this man and uh, Isaiah wrote a biography on him because of how meaningful his life was to the people and wanting to even say to future kings uh, the how-to and the how-not in, in the life of this king who fortified Jerusalem. Uh, the economy was booming while he reigned. In the latter years after the leprosy, he was co-regent with his son Jotham, who was a good king also, but his grandson Ahaz will come to the throne, and he, he's, a, he's a wicked king. Uh, so when he dies, it really is the end of the Judean prosperity, the great time to live 
in Jerusalem and in, in, in Judah. The Assyrian power was re-emerging as a superpower in that region. And that has always a lot to do with everything because they were a threat to life. They were, they were very dangerous. They, were, they would just conquer and, and take everything. And Ahaz, we get to that beginning of that in chapter 6. So here is this king, Uzziah, that meant so much to this prophet Isaiah. And he ascends the throne, Uzziah does, when he's 16 years old. And he reigns for 52 years, and a small portion of it with, with his son because of the leprosy. And even if he didn't have leprosy, it was not uncommon for them when the kings got older to sh- share their throne with their, 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 the um, heir apparent. So for 52 years, he's king, and up to that point, uh, the longer reign than any of the Judean or kings in the north. But Manasseh will have a 55-year reign, and most of it wicked. Anyway, leprosy that he was smit, smote with may explain the double name Uzziah. He's known as Uzziah as here, and also Azariah. Uh, Azariah means the Lord has helped. Uzziah means the strength of Yahweh. And it, the Assyrians, when they have, they have monuments that still that archaeologists have found, and they wrote some of their history on it. And the Assyrians called him Ahaziah. It seems as though after he became a leper, he is then he took on the name Uzziah. The Lord, Yahweh is my strength. And this would account for why he has these two names that are very prominent in, in his, the record of his life. And that new name, Uzziah, speaks of his repentance. That God is my strength. Yes, I'm smitten, but God is my strength. And if, if all, a lot of evidence points in that direction. I, I like that evidence, and so I'm going with it. Now, that's the king, but as to Isaiah, and you just can't come to such a chapter like this and not fill in some of these, um, uh, color in some of these uh, sections. He, I think he's already a prophet. Uh, a lot of commentators think that chapter 6 is Isaiah going back and saying, well, the authority for whatever I said in chapters 1 through 5 is because of this calling that I had. But I, I don't see it that way. No surprise there. Uh, and and I'll, I'll tell you why uh, in a little bit. But uh, he's already a prophet. This calling in chapter 6 is to a larger work. It is not an initial calling to the prophecy. He is already a prophet, but he's getting a special call from God. And the first five chapters are really prologue to his writings. And you have to remember, the writing prophets, because some prophets didn't write uh, like uh, anything for us, like Elijah. Elijah you don't have the book of Elijah. But when the writing prophets come along, many of what they had to write was the outcome of their preaching. God would give them these things in preparation. They'd preach them, and then they'd write it down. And Isaiah clearly... You know, we can't think of the ancients as being, well, they weren't as savvy as us. Well, they were certainly were. Uh, they, well, they wouldn't know how to work a microwave, perhaps. But they, when they wrote something down, it was organized. They, they weren't just sloppy about these things. So the first five chapters are prologue 
to his writings. He lays it out in the beginning where this is going. Is God reaching for his people, dealing with their sin, not winking at sin, but condemning it, uh, telling them, you better get your act together. And then he inserts this sixth chapter and says, let me tell you about when God expanded my ministry from just being a prophet in Israel to really coming to the nation and dealing with her troubles. Uh, so it is, I, I think, a secondary call. And um, you have to understand, again, the writing is not meant to be chronological. However, there is a sequence of themes. So that's how they structured it. Now, he's not trying to write his biography and saying, this happened to me, and then I got married. And, you no, know, he's, he's giving the theme uh, that he is after to the people in sections. So we'll come to sections, for instance, where he's dealing with the nations, you know, woe unto Moab, woe, woe unto, you know, uh, Assyria. And then he goes, we get, by the time we get to chapter 40, we have this whole other approach to ministry, which is, uh, in many ways, more passionate. It has to do with the Messiah uh, coming and the prophecies regarding him. So this secondary call to a specific work that carries the ultimatum of God, why I think that he's already a prophet before this calling is because of what's recorded in verse 9. If you have your Bible still open in Isaiah chapter 6, look at verse 9. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing and do not understand, keep on seeing and do not perceive. Uh, evidently, he was already preaching to them. So the Lord says, keep on hearing, keep on. You know, the, he's, he's already been a prophet, but things are going to, uh, the, the, the predictive prophecy is going to come to the front and it's going to move away from being just uh, upholding the law of Moses and the glory of Yahweh in the face of idols to now a prophetic word with things. And uh, that starts in chapter 7. We get to chapter 7 and he's, he's going to start giving predictions. Uh, and if you've been a Christian long enough, you, you know that uh, there are secondary experiences with God. There's not just that one time you're saved. It, there was a time that I was saved, and there was a time that God called me to ministry, and then there's been times since then where God has uh, spoken to me about other things. So I find nothing out of place and... Um, um, and I don't think I'm overthinking it when I do that. Anyway, this larger ministry is what he is now called to. And uh, the first five chapters to the reader are saying he gets right out the starting gate with, his, with where this is going. Uh, so uh, really nothing more to add about that uh, and his calling that um, I haven't already said. Now... He is young at this time. He's going to be a prophet about 60 years, maybe a little bit more. And the way we know that is because in chapter 1, he tells us that he was a prophet in the reign, during the reign of Uzziah, of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. So just looking at the, the, the time period, leaving out Uzziah, the year that the, the, he died and this prophecy begins, just taking the other ones. Jotham for 16 years, Ahaz for 16 years. This 32 years of ministry right there. Uh, Hezekiah for 29 years. He was prophet with him all the way through. 
And then Manasseh, who reigned 50 years old, Isaiah probably dies early on in Manasseh's reign, but he still was around in, in, in the early parts. Um, legend says that Manasseh had Isaiah killed, but the Bible does not record that, so it's just um, sort of hearsay. So, uh, you know, adding up the time, you said, well, he, he was around a very long time to minister in Israel. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Well, he saw Jesus Christ. That's who that is before the virgin birth. Of course, Christ is eternal. And he shows up in the Old Testament before the manger in the New Testament. And the way we know this is Jesus is because Jesus says it was him. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. And that's John writing uh, about the experience with Christ. Well, I would think John had some inside information on that, having walked with the Lord also. When John writes this in the first chapter, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, that's what Isaiah saw. That's who Isaiah saw. And uh, when he says, I saw the Lord, well, to him, this is Yahweh. But we know there's, there's no difference. Uh, there's a triune God. And none could, none could survive a full-blown ex, uh, experience with God. Um, it, but God at the same time knows how to make to manifest his presence so that we're not overwhelmed. First Timothy 6, who alone has immortality, that means he, he's eternal, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Now, when we get to heaven, of course, we'll be able to see him. But now, uh, there is, uh, you know, God in, shows up in Christophany form, Christ in the Old Testament in human form, or through a theophany, some created object representing him, although it is not him, like the fire that led them at night and the pillar of cloud that led them by day. Uh, that was the presence of God with his people, packaged for them in such a way that they understood he was with them and yet not revealing his full glory. So this uh, Isaiah, this vision that he has given of the Lord's glory, is in contrast to the nation and how they live. Because they, as the majority were not living in a glorious way. They were out doing their own thing. They weren't interested. So maybe, maybe you go to church and you're just not interested. And you hear the pastor saying things, and blah, blah, blah. When are we, when is it going to be over? Well, that's a very serious symptom. There's something wrong. Well, what do you do about it? You have to go to the Lord. Uh, is he not worth it? You go to him and say, Lord, I'm not getting it. I'm not moved. Uh, yeah, you know, what happens when you, if you prepare Bible studies for decades and you come to a place where you're not being moved? Well, you better cry out to God. And he is faithful. You've got to believe that. I, I know he is faithful, I've been there, and will likely be there again. Uh, you know, what happens when you're not in the mood? But your duty requires you to do the task that you just don't feel like doing. You break through it. And it has fruit, very great rewards. 
And uh, anyway, he says, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, train, here's the, the fringe or the hem of his robe. And this is poetic language because he sees them on the throne. And he's saying, it was just filled with his presence. This was just extraordinary. The, hem, the temple here he is referring to is not Solomon's. This is the heavenly temple in the, in the vision that he is seeing. And uh, visions are somewhat like dreams. A dream you're sleeping, a vision you're awake. But they're also similar in that there are things that take place in the vision that would not take place in reality, not without consequence. In this section, the seraphim is going to put a hot coal on the lips of the prophet, and he's, he's not going to hurt. There'll be no blistered lips because of it. Well, because it's part of the vision, and it's making a point, and giving the prophet insight into what God wants, what the people do not want, and it just is, there's more to it than, than just a, you know, a vision. It's just literal interpretation. And though it, it, it is consistent with, with other things, and so we're not left groping to make up things uh, as we, we can do. Anyway, the Israelites, they saw their temple in Jerusalem. That was still in existence at this time as the uh, earthly point of contact with Yahweh. Uh, now, John, in his gospel, writes about uh, the fragrant oil that was put on Christ by the woman before the cross. And they tried to stop it. This costly spike, not, you know, Judas, could have been sold and given to the poor. And Christ said that she's doing this for my burial. She's ahead of you. She sees where this is going. And she is anointing me for my burial. But the Bible says that the whole room was filled with the fragrance. That's filled with the train of his robe. And then when he goes to wash the disciples' feet, we, later in John's Gospel, we read in chapter 13, that he rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. He was filling that room with love for these men. And this is a characteristic of, of the Holy Spirit, to fill us. We say, fill us, O Lord. When the priests were ministering at the, the, the inauguration of, the, of Solomon's temple, the smoke filled the place. They couldn't minister anymore. They were overwhelmed uh, to a point, uh, not to the point of, of injury or anything like that. And so this filling of the temple with just, just the fringe of his robe it speaks about the glory of God. And Isaiah is seeing this. How does he communicate it? Well, he's doing his best to tell us. So you put yourself in his spot and you imagine seeing God on the throne and, and then this experience of man, but just the hem of his garment was too much for the structure to hold. This is a temple in heaven. And then you, you, you start thinking about, well, the fragrant oil filled the place with its fragrance. And it was the fragrance of sacrifice for me, the sinner. And then the servant of God, uh, sort of, you know, uh, just laying aside his garments... He doesn't have to do this for sinners to wash their feet. And that's love. And he speaks so compassionately. For when Peter said, you'll never wash my feet, Lord. Uh, Peter, the Lord says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have anything to do with me, Peter. You're not yelling at him, screaming. He's just saying it like it is. And Peter, of course, submits immediately. So this is the love that belongs to the relationship between uh, those who worship God and God. And no matter what you're going through, that love is, is there. Verse 2, above it, well, let me pause and look back at verse 1 a moment. Make sure I didn't, because, you know, again, you can stay on that 
chapter forever. Imagine just seeing the Lord sitting on the throne. And you bet he's high and lifted up because he is high and lifted up. The one, the lofty one who dwells in eternity. Verse, that's language from Isaiah, latter chapters. Verse 2, above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. Consistent to a man of God, he first talks to us about God. And then some of the other things that were going on. Clearly, God has other celestial intelligent creatures that are not Martians. And the seraphim, the only time they're mentioned in the scripture, and Isaiah does it twice, and these angelic creatures uh, are certainly part of worship in heaven as they cry out, holy, 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 to one another, lightly in some chant form, perhaps. And, and don't think that's negative because some cults have chants. doesn't mean, okay, there's no good chanting. <laughs> Gregorian music can, can be a little interesting. But it doesn't make it evil in and of itself. Anyway, uh, these are different—a different experience than Revelation four, when the scene is in heaven and you see the cherubim there. So you know, God has just got so much that how many things are in heaven that are not recorded in the Bible? And when we get there, we just think, "Wow, that this is pretty incredible." How would anybody have described that anyway? Anyway, each had, each one had six wings. Well, again, a little different from the four creatures that Ezekiel saw, who had four wings. Uh, you know, you could just guess at, at that, and I don't, I don't want to do that. But Ezekiel writes after Isaiah, and he makes no attempt to reconcile the two. He doesn't try to say, well, Isaiah saw six, so I better write six. Uh, no, he tells you what he saw. Isaiah saw six of them, I saw four of them. Uh, just nothing, no contradiction, no problem there. It says with two, he covered his face. Now, part of what that means, because that's your identity, your face, visage, is that they were aware of their insignificance relative to the throne of God. It wasn't about them. That's what they're, they're, they're trying, they're communicating with this gesture, with their, the two of the wings covering their face. And so we're not preoccupied with the seraphim. Well, we will be just for a moment. But there are many that come to the Bible, and they want to hear all the, you know, the spooky things and can just start going weird with that if they're not careful, giving angels more attention than other things that need, need, really need the attention. Anyway, uh, it, it was as if to say that, um, you know, I'm not worthy. It's, it's just not about me. The worthy one is on the throne. John the Baptist put it this way. He must increase, I must decrease. And you find somebody that's full of themselves and you're full of a problem. Uh, you know, how many of them are out there today? People just with their selfies and posting these things of just their faces. It's, in, it's insane. It's just like, I don't know. All right. I mean, what, I'm not saying selfies are bad. But like anything else, to a point, after a while, you've just become so self-absorbed. We see a lot of these uh, people, and they become celebrities, heroes, royalty for other people. Anyway, a picture of personal unimportance. That's what's... And, and absolute trust at the same time. Uh, that's the beauty of it. When Peter said, let me walk on the water, and the Lord said, come on, that was absolute trust for a little bit. For a few steps at least. And if he took two steps, 
He walked on the water, just say, for two steps. That's more than I've ever done. It's more than anybody else has ever done. It is remarkable. And anyway, I should point out, their covering of their faces, it's not self-abasement. That's from the devil. It is exaltation to God. One, one self-abasement destroys the one who is abasing themselves. The other edifies. You enjoy. If you, once you're born again, you enjoy praising God. You enjoy his glory. He says, with two he covered his feet. Well, that's, that's what takes us to where we're going. And it also operates the bass drum. Uh, their paths are always subject to the throne of God. That's how I see it. And I think that's a very basic, yet serious and profound understanding that the righteous steps, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. That's what the psalmist said. That's what they're illustrating here. You know, I go where I'm told. But incidentally, just kind of a cute little side note. Yeah, but it's their wings that are making them move around, not their feet. Anyway, by this they disavow the any intention on choosing their own path. And we see this when, you know, people say they're waiting for the Lord, then they get impatient, and they stop waiting, and they go and do something and make a mess out of it. Well, they're, they're saying, no, it's, it, we are in subjection to the throne. He says, and with two he flew. So they're multitasking. They're covering their eyes, covering their feet, but still they're, they're flying around. Watch out where you're going. Uh, but this is the vision that he is getting, and these things are supposed to speak truths to him. If these creatures before the throne of God have this attitude, well, what attitude should we have? I think a similar one. He must increase, I must decrease. The steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord under his authority. Uh, so it, the scene is one of constant motion. But I like this part about it. I, when I think of these creatures around the throne of God, whether they're cherubim, four-winged, or six, every time I, I think of them, it, it's not far from just this understanding they're available to God. They're right there, available to God. And if you want to do anything for the Lord that requires servants, if they're not available, you don't have servants. Availability is not little. It is underrated. Uh, and it is, um, you know, if God makes, gives you availability, well, then do something with it. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 14. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. Now, they had four wings and they were moving that fast. What are the six wings? <laughs> anyway, well, they might any, aerodynamically. Uh, anyway, the point is this constant motion before the Lord. There's nothing stagnant about any picture of God on the throne when we come across it in Scripture. I mean, he's not just sitting there. Uh, even when, Peter, when Stephen sees the Lord on, look in, in heaven, what is the Lord doing? He's standing up. There's this action to, to receive Peter, uh, Stephen. Verse 3, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. 
Well, to say this twice is to say something is most holy with the Hebrew in the Scripture. And to say it three times is to put it on its highest level. It is a superlative. And we covered some of this, the usage of rep- uh, repetitions and superlatives. For instance, back in Genesis, when the writer Moses says that they were pits, pits, well, the translators come along and says, well, that doesn't capture what he's saying. So they translate pits, pits for full of pits. And then we come to Second Kings, and he mentions gold, gold. But the translators say the purest of gold. So that, my point is, when they are saying holy, 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 this is a superlative. Uh, this, is, this is on another level of, of the, the, the throne of God, the presence of God, is in a, a whole other realm outside of humanity, which we would expect it to be. He is pure, and he is perfect, and he is powerful. And we, on the other hand, we are impure, we are imperfect, and we are impotent next to the throne of God and his purity. Now, you, can, you may say, well, I'm, I'm not impure next to some people. <laughs> that might be true, but not when it comes to the Lord. And yet, he loves us nonetheless. He sees us as impure, imperfect, and impotent. And we don't have the power, we don't have the strength, and he loves us nonetheless, And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 6, 7, and 8. He's saying God still loves you. He loves the sinner. Verse, uh, continuing in verse 4, is is Yahweh of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Well, those who write the, read and write Hebrew say that uh, this could also mean May the earth be full of his glory, which, which is, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, that takes a, another, they're both true, because you can look at creation and say, man, you'd have to be a nut to think that these things just appeared. So, or, you know, no matter how much time, they just slowly change. That is just crazy. How can we all have eyebrows? How does, I mean, fish don't have eyebrows, though. I mean, just you look at little things, you say, come on, there's, there's a creator. There's an intelligent being behind these things. How you can just tell your brain to lift your pinky. And if you were waiting as an evolution, according to evolution, how would you learn to breathe? You'd die before it developed. Okay, I'm preaching to the choir on that. Because it's just, you've got just intelligent people, otherwise intelligent people, that will believe the goofiest things. Uh, once they reject the Lord. Anyway, verse 4. Uh, the post of the door. And the post of the door. Were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Well, this is a collective pronoun. When it says of the voice of one who. who of, of the voice of him. Uh, it's talking about the seraphim. He's already set that up. Don't, don't get tripped up by little things like that. Yet Isaiah seems to be very calm and unshaken uh, at this point. He's going to be shaken, but he's also going to be inspired. And this is a big difference between, you know, the the presence of God and the presence of Satan. Satan does not inspire us. uh, Unless unless we're in the spirit and we're we're inspired to retaliate. Uh, Anyway, uh, and the house was filled with smoke. Well, smoke always means fire. Fire always means activity, but it does not always mean destruction. It can mean anger. You have to keep it in context. 
A cloud speaks, of course, of the glory of God, but uh, smoke has different applications. When you go to Revelation 15, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And so there, there's activity in creation from, through, through the Lord in heaven, but this is the wrath of God. But that wrath of God is also purging out the evil. It's not this capricious, you know, anger. He's not having rage, God rage. Uh, it's mean, that's meaningless. He's dealing with evil that causes suffering and pain. So, there was no smoke at first. But then, based on the prophet's reaction in verse 5, so I said, woe is me, uh, this tells us that the, involved with Smoke here in this vision, at this point, uh, there is wrath, which shows up in verses 9 through 12. That's where this is going. And so, smoke is always the direct result of something burning. Something is going on. It could be the incense that's in context, which comes into this in a moment. The smoke from the incense ascending into heaven and God receiving it as a prayer. That's benevolent there. Here. Again, this is anger brewing against evil. Uh, verse 5, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. He's unclean, but yet God still let him into his presence in this vision. So, you know, again, Satan's always quick to say, You're not worthy. Look what you just did. And, and, you know, but the grace of God overrules Satan all the time. Anyway, uh, I mean, uh, certainly when we're submitted. So the one who was telling us about the woes being poured out on the decadent behavior of his own people is one now that feels the woe upon himself. Well, this is what Paul wrote in Romans 3, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And when he says, I am undone, he says, I'm doomed. That's the Hebrew. He says, I'm in big trouble because I'm doomed. And Paul put it this way in Romans 7, wretched man that I am. I mean, it just says it all. He's wretched. We, we look at Paul, we say, man, he's a, he's a hero. But his sins have another, tell another story. And then Paul adds, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on to say, thank God for Jesus Christ. Essentially, that's what he then says. I'm delivered by a Savior. He says, here in verse 5, because I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, the sinner, like the leper, has to cry unclean. And sin makes us lepers. It makes us blind. And if it doesn't make us blind, it certainly blurs our vision. Uh, you know, when you like a sin, you can lose judgment trying to defend it, trying to keep it and tell, well, it's really not that bad. And, you know, you go down that road. But Leviticus 13. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. Here's Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, so as 
wicked as people of his day were, the prophet was well aware of his own impurity. This tells us he's not self-righteous with what he is about to say through the rest of his prophecy is not coming from a man who is unconscious of his own shortcomings. And yet, at the same time, he's saying, but that doesn't disqualify me in and of itself from being a messenger. Yeah, I got my issues, but here's the message. And the message doesn't come from me. Because Satan will do this as parents. You know, you see your child do something, you say, well, I used to do it too when I was a boy, so it's okay. No, it may not be okay. It may be very bad. And you just can't, you know, you, you still have to process or what's the best way to handle this and not dismiss it. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. <laughs> so he says, I'm bringing everybody with me. Because they're guilty. Earth is loaded with these types of people. It always has been. It's loaded with unclean people. Christ died for sinners because there's no other type of people. And it is what the world doesn't want to hear, but they better hear it. Lost sinners, and they're not wanting to hear it, they have a defective view of their uncleanliness. Many of them don't believe they're unclean enough to be just sent to hell. And others just confuse it all the way along. But we're supposed to help them. He says, for my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts, always humble and ready to serve as this man. It takes just a glance at God to know one's guilt, it takes also that glance to understand his mercy. When Peter, who I will never you know, deny you, and he denies him, Luke picks up the story. And Luke, and Luke writes, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, right when he denied him three times in the, in the rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. He's, he's just completely, woe is me, I'm unclean, I'm, I blew it. He's right, the Lord is right. And it's just this love, this, all these things happening in Peter. Oh man, I would not want to be in that spot. And yet, it is a beautiful spot to be in if that's what is required. And uh, that's what happened. Anyway, just to Peter, that looked. And the Lord, it says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That's all he had to do. He didn't have to say a word. And I don't think there's any frown on his face. He just had a look of love. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. Well, this confession launched a solution. Woe is me. I'm doomed. That's confession. But it... There's no confession without conviction. Isaiah was convinced he was doomed. And so he confesses it, and that brings the cleansing. The alliteration just happens to be there in the English. The uh, conviction, confession, the cleansing. Well, it's not a forced fit. The seraph became a ministering spirit on behalf of the prophet. So Paul writes, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who who will inherit salvation? Well, that fits Isaiah perfectly. Where would Paul get something like that? Well, not only Isaiah, there are other stories in the chapter, in the scriptures that have the same uh, effect. God heard the sigh of the sinner. Woe is me. It's a big part. Could have named this woe is me, but, you know, there's too much more to it. So where do you go? There's so much in here. The song of the seraphs is interrupted by the confession of the sinner. 
They're holy, holy, holy. And then he makes this confession. Okay, church is over for a minute. And they get down to business. And they address the sinner. Of course, all under the authority of God. This is the vision that he is getting. So worship is paused in order that the doomed sinner may be answered. Having in his hand a live coal, when he, that means it's hot, which he had taken from the, with the tongues from the altar. This is likely the incense altar. There are two, two places of fire, one flaming. Uh, that would be the brazen altar, which flamings, where the blood sacrifices were, were offered. And then as you went inside into the uh, temple, there would be the golden altar where the incense was offered. But how did that incense light? Well, they put the incense on the hot coals, and, and that would have the, the smoke ascend up to heaven, representing the prayers of God's people. Uh, well, Isaiah is in the throne room of God. He's not outside where, the, where a brazen altar would be found. Uh, this is why I believe it is the incense altar, and it has everything to do with his prayer, which is baked into his, I am unclean, woe is me, I am undone. There is an appeal in that. That confession is a prayer, and God receives it that way. And this altar, was the golden one, was where the nation's prayers were received. So fire from the altar speaks of God's response. Well, sometimes in wrath, sometimes in purification, as it is here. And other times, the fire speaks of his presence with the smoke. It was when the, Jew, when the law was given, and it was smoke on the mountain. Because that's where God was. Who's causing that smoke up there? It was God. So, uh, Elijah, then you call in the name of your gods, and I will call in the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. And Isaiah said, yeah, I don't need you to tell me that. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. <laughs> but he could have. Uh, anyhow, uh, there's a picture, the God who answers by fire. And this is an answer. This is a response. Not necessarily to a question, but which it was, woe is me, I am undone, uh, oh wretched man that I am. It is uh, a response to a need, an answer to a problem. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin purged. Well, if he's going to speak as God's messenger, those lips need to be purged. And this is contact. He touched my mouth with it. Contact. But what was too hot for the seraphim to handle, the lips of the prophet could take it. He had to use the tongues. This is, this is, this is illustrative. I mean, in reality, we could just, well, his feathers would catch on fire, if you know Wings, never mind. Uh, <laughs> this is all meant to tell us something. It's not so we could skim over it and say, oh, look at that. The angel used tongues, the seraphim used tongues, but the prophet, it was no problem. Well, why? Well, because he's fit for ministry. I believe, I believe very strongly that we are fit to deal with the curse of being sinners. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a chance. And God, when man fell into sin, God says, they can, they can make it through this if they want to. If they do it my way, they'll make it through this. 
uh, it's sort of God saying, you know, you need to jump off the roof into my hands. I will catch you. And if you don't trust me, then uh, you're going to be doomed. You're stuck. Let's just say the roof's on fire. You've got to put, some, <laughs> put, put something on there to make you have to jump. Well, anyway, behold, this has touched your lips. So he makes it very clear. There's no guessing. He's telling him that he knows what's happening to him. And Isaiah is, of course, he's going to write this down into this prophecy. And uh, the vision, this vision, is something that the other prophets don't seem to have... We don't read about Elijah going through this. They had their own experiences. We don't read of Daniel going through this. He had his experiences. So it's not mandatory. It's not a mandatory cookie-cut calling. This was for Isaiah, the one who spoke more about the Messiah than any of the prophets. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. The spiritual cleansing that prepped him for service. Now, this is not for salvation. He's already saved. Uh, this is for serving. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. That could be for anything. It applies whenever the Lord does it. But this, the context of all of this is the calling of the prophet and letting him know you are a sinner and you have to be purged of your sin. And it has to come from the throne of God. And this did not happen independent of these things. So God has to always make us fit to serve. And um, we, we notice that all Isaiah had to do was receive. That's all he had to do. He wasn't told, all right, give him the tongs, let him go take the coal off the... All he had to do was receive it after his confession. Verse 8, Also I heard the voice of, of the Lord, Adonai, not Yahweh, same person. But he is Lord, in addition to being Yahweh, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. The, notice the, the plural pronoun, us. This is the Godhead. It shows up in Genesis 1, Let us make man in our own image. And again in Genesis 11, where uh, you know, the, the Lord comes down and speaks in the same, same manner. Uh, this doctrine is of... The Trinity, that the Godhead that we know it to be, is not as explicit in the Old Testament, though it is there. In the New Testament, it's quite implicit. You're baptizing the name in the, fa- in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So um, God is the same God in both Testaments, no question about that. But here he looks to send servants. But too often servants go without being sent before the, they've been developed by the Lord. Waiting develops us. And too many times we become impatient and move and, and make things more difficult. Anyway, we would say the timing has to be right. Then I said, here I am, send me. Now, what I really like about this is that um, he didn't think about stepping forward. He stepped forward. And the world teaches, well, don't volunteer. Well, here the prophet is volunteering. He's not afraid to volunteer. He's there to serve. And the Lord says, who will I send? And, well, he's been cleansed. He's fit for duty. And Isaiah, he, he stopped. No more woe is me. Uh, now he's acting on, on the call. And it is, um, you know, ministry is not something we do. Ministry is something God does through us. And we're seeing that happen. 
in this section of Scripture. So to those who say, never volunteer, you can say, well, if Christ had that attitude, we'd have no Savior. If Christ, if Isaiah had that, we'd have no book of Isaiah. Psalm 110, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness. That has a future and a present application. Now we come to verse 9. And he said, to, and he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. God just gave them the solution to salvation. See, listen, and return to God. He just gave it to them. But it's this packaged in satire and sarcasm. These are inverted parallelism. You know, the meaning is it just switches around. He gives vigor to the point that he is emphasizing. Any sane person will say, no, 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 I'm going to listen. Any sane person will say, "Uh uh-uh, I am not going to be. I am going to listen. And God, as I mentioned, notorious for using sarcasm in an effort to reach people. In Ezekiel 20, verse 39, he does the same thing, God speaking. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says Yahweh God, go serve everyone of you his idols. Now, God is not going to tell people to go send idols unless he's sarcastic. I like telling you, child, go, go jump off the roof. No, don't do that. But, uh, you, you know, so the council, no, I'm not going to do that. It's crazy. So this is, um, I, I love this when God does this in Scripture. We have to watch it because we're not God. And we can be just harming people if we're not careful. But some of it sometimes is very helpful to use the absurd to jar someone, to appeal, appeal to their sense of reason. Verses... 9 and 10 that I just read, they show up six times in the New Testament. That's how important they are. In all the Gospels, it is repeated. In Acts and in Romans. This is big stuff. So he tells him in verse 9, go and tell this people. There's the commission to send him out. But before there's a go, there had to be a woe. See, again, it works out in English. He had to say, woe is me. He had to see he was a sinner. That he wasn't, you know, well, I should be a pastor. I'm the smartest one here. Uh, you know, I should. I'm more holy than everybody else. It makes perfect sense that I would be invited to be a board member or I would be invited to lead worship because I am that good. <laughs> uh, years ago, you'd say most people wouldn't talk like that. Now, looking at all these self-absorbed folks, you wonder. Uh, anyway, not in a church, I hope. Anyway, God says, he doesn't say they're my people. He said, go tell this people. Again, another time, we've seen this before. He says, keep on hearing and do not understand. So he calls the prophet. The prophet volunteers and he says, okay, here's your message. Go tell them that I love them. I have a plan for their life. Well, that's true. But that's not enough. Uh, You know, that's like sending someone on a journey with with just water and they have other needs too and they're still going to die without it there you you got to have there's more to it and this message that he is giving him is sort of like samuel's first message samuel's first message was to tell his mentor that he was messed up and god was going to deal with him <laughs> that's what this samuel's first message was 
And here Isaiah is, I'll go. I go, good, tell these people I'm going to slam them. And so, uh, you know, what, what, what do the Rick Warrens do with messages like this from the Bible? They edit them out. Don't tell congregations this. They might not come back Sunday. Well, if that offends them to that point, you don't want them to come back on a Sunday. Look, Paul said, listen, if you don't clean out this leaven in the church, it's going to wipe the church out. And so when you see a church of pastors exercising uh, or disfellowshipping someone because of some sin that is not either confessed or dealt with, it is because the Bible teaches us this. In, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, a little leaven leavens a lump. He's talking about a specific sexual sin. And he says, if you let this go on in your congregation, it's going to spread through it. And um, it, it, it worked for, with Paul. The person that was guilty repented, and he was restored. Anyway, um, this uh, coming back to this, Isaiah 5, he already preached some of this. One reason why I said the first five chapters were an introduction to everything else. And Isaiah gives you his, this segment here of his calling before he unloads the remaining chapters. In verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, God speaking, Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. So the prophet is, you know... He's on top of it. He's delivering his message. He says, keep on seeing and do not perceive. Again, neither God nor the prophets are beyond sarcasm, and it's not meant to hurt but to expose. Paul quotes this passage in Acts, like I mentioned. Sorry, I lost track of time for a minute. I thought it was 10 o'clock. <laughs> anyway, it would be a nightmare for you. It would be a vision for me. Anyway... Acts, he says in Acts 28, he says, So when they did not agree among themselves, after he preached about Christ to the Jewish people in, in Rome, uh, they, departed, they departed after Paul had said one word. They departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers. And he quotes this section. Therefore, what the Holy Spirit says, God says, because Paul is saying what Yahweh was saying to Isaiah was the Holy Spirit saying it to Isaiah. Wait a minute. I thought you said Yahweh is Christ. That's right. It's the Trinity at work. You're not going to get away from this. God is so tight. The Godhead is so woven together. They're inseparable. They only are and divided is not the right word, but presented to us in a triune form, so we can get our head around what's going on in the mind of God as he deals with us. The glory of the Father, the salvation of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's hard enough to understand what God is all about. These things really help. This, these presentations help a lot. Anyway, uh, he's going, I, I want I'm almost done. What do we got? 20 chapters, verses left. Spurgeon has an excellent quote I want to share. He says, The main reason why men are not persuaded to be Christian lies in their own hearts. It is not a flaw in the preacher's logic. It is a flaw in the hearer's nature. It is an error in the hearer's will. It is not that the reasonings are not powerful. It is that the man does not wish to feel their power and so endeavors to elude them. He got that from me. He's saying, 
the people that weren't listening to God are closing their ears and their eyes because they didn't want to hear it. There's nothing wrong with the message that's delivered. It's the recipient. And, you know, you can defeat some people with truth and they will tighten their grip on a lie. You've just disproved their entire religion. And they, they won't give it up. And I hate that. And I think as a, with a righteous indignation that they will not succumb to truth. Integrity stands or falls on this. Well, Naaman, he got it. But he had an abject lesson. Dionysus that we just read about in Acts 17, he understood the message of Paul, even though his colleagues scoffed at him. These men, uh, Naaman and Dionysus, they, they laid hold of the truth. Ahaz, he will defy God. He won't take it. He's coming next chapter. Anyway, verse 11. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate, verse 12. Yahweh has removed men far away and forsaken, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is a heartfelt inquiry. How long, Lord? And he's saying it's going to be past your lifetime, Isaiah. The judgments, they come from not heeding the warnings. The worldliness of mind creates lukewarmness, apathy, And then, uh, of course, uh, that brings the judgment. Verse 13, But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. So ever uh, typical of the Lord and the prophets to lay out the judgments, the solutions, and the hope. And the nation will appear to be lifeless, but life will be still there. So it's a saying, you can't kill a hardwood with an axe. If you cut down a pine tree, that stump that you leave behind is not going to sprout. It's dead. If you do it to an oak, the chances are almost sure, with few exceptions, it's going to start sprouting again. Uh, so that's the point. Uh, you, 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 God is saying, "There's going to you're going the stump will be cut in judgment, but it will it will again it will still be alive. There will be a remnant that will survive, and the holy seed here is the gene is the dual meaning there. The genealogy from Abraham to Manasseh, um, technically Isaac to Manasseh, because Abraham had other children that are not covenant children. But you can say Abraham to Manasseh. Ezra makes this reference in chapter nine." Uh, the, the seed of the woman then applies to this in its second application to the Messiah. And this is a foreshadowing of the Messianic promise. We get to chapter 11, and this is what we read. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. And so life is, is still there, and that is talking about the Messiah Isaiah is talking about the Jewish people will continue in spite of the judgments and Messiah will come from them. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, just what an incredible chapter to remember that this is not creative writing. This was the experience of a man and he just preserved it for us through your spirit and we are grateful to you. May we uh, not take these things casually 
When we have contact with you, Lord, may we understand that it's a serious business as well as glorious. And we ask that you get us all home safely this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.